Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center presents William Bailey and Mark Strand in conversation. The artist and the poet joined in discussion to celebrate the opening of the exhibition, William Bailey Works on Paper, Temperas, Drawings, and Prints at the Gallery at the Whitney. The first voice you hear is Mr. Strand. I've known Bill for a long time. I, uh, I was an art student here, and uh, Bill, well, when I saw his drawings, it was a show when I arrived of the student works, students who were already here. I thought that perhaps I'd come to the wrong place because of Bailey. Well, Bill and I became friends, and I followed the course of his paintings over the years. Of course, I stopped painting, largely because of Bill. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't want to blame him. Um, but uh, I, uh, I've always admired his work, and I've always, um, whenever a show of Bill's comes up, I go to it, and um, you know, the changes over the years are subtle. And I remember the strange figures he was doing at the beginning of his career as a figurative painter, and then he drifted into just eggs, and then the eggs began to disappear, and various uh, utensils uh, appeared. And it, it, initially, the utensils were spread farther apart, and then they became, they seemed to be grouped closer together. Um, and the same utensils, pots, whatever they are, uh, egg cups, uh, pitchers, uh, began re the same ones began reappearing. And they became, over the years, like characters in a, uh, a play that Bill was constantly rewriting or reproducing. Uh, the paintings are not the same, but the objects become familiar. You look at one, then you look at another. And it's interesting, when you see, uh, I'm going to ask Bill some questions later, but when you see one, it seems like each object has found its perfect place. But then you look at another one, and you say, hey, they're not in the same place. They're in another perfect place. And then another leads you to think, well, there are many perfect places. And the end result of this is that you develop an idea of the relativity of perfection. Uh, It's at first disconcerting, but then it's very reassuring to know that uh, you know perfection can be so democratized. Maybe I should ask Bill um, what scale means. 
I mean, when you, the experience of looking at a large bailey is much different from looking at a small bailey. Um, naturally, one is big, the other is small. <laughs> but but this, the, the, uh, the concentration or the density of the small ones seems um, to provide somewhat different experience. And um, the, the big ones seem uh, tonal and atmospheric, and uh, the small ones have a kind of, are atmospheric, but it's contained. It's a, um, they usually have white borders around them. And I'm, I just, I'm trying to find, uh, trying to verbalize what the difference might be, but maybe you could, maybe for you there is no difference. Well, there's some obvious differences. Can you hear me? Uh, one of them is uh, the difference between sitting down and standing up. Uh, the big ones I do standing up because I have to back up a certain distance. So uh, viewing distance is another way of putting that. And the large things are also done in oil, which is a different medium. Uh, than these works on paper. The, the colored works on paper that are paintings were done. Uh, <clears throat> the first ones I did were in, in uh, gouache. And gouache is a medium, it's, a, it's an opaque watercolor. And the problem with gouache is that it picks up. If you work over it, uh, you can't keep working over it. It just picks up. Uh, the underneath layers. And so I started doing casein. And most of the, the work I did over the years on paper was casein. And then uh, a, a colleague, a fellow painter, uh, Richard Ryan, uh, said, why don't you try uh, golden acrylic? Uh, I hated acrylic. I hated the idea of acrylic. But I tried it. And uh, it, it turned out that I could get almost the same thing as casein, and uh, it was more durable, and the color changed less when it dried. Uh, <clears throat> so that's a very different medium, and it's a different way of applying the paint and, and uh, different viewing distance. So they're different in that yeah. way. Uh, the, I think also, always in a painting, uh, one doesn't know what it's supposed to look like until you get there. Uh, I mean, it isn't as though one is working toward a, a known end. Uh, I remember I was on a panel years ago at the studio school in New York, and one of the members of the panel was a, a critic from Art America, who said, we all know that what an artist does is has an idea, and then he does it. <laughs> and the, the group of artists on the panel, uh, who were quite varied in terms of, of their work, all in one voice said no. Uh, and it completely wrong, which was surprising since he was a knowledgeable art critic. 
Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> that was sarcasm. Uh, anyway, it, it is, I think, something that, that may not be true of, of uh, all painters, but in my case, uh, I do the painting to find out uh, what it's supposed to look like. Now, do you, I noticed in your studio you had the beginning of a painting and the objects were in place yes. in the painting. So there's something you, there's a guide you have at the beginning. In a painting, of course, you're free to change the position of those. Now, what's the difference? With a print, you can't. Once you've started, that's Once right. You, you can't. You can't. I mean, you can, but it's... so I mean, to what extent is the? I mean, to a large extent, the print is the opposite. Uh, I mean, you do have to have a sense of where you're going. It's not that you find out uh, at the end where it is you've gone. No, uh, you still do. You still do. So what is it? I mean, I mean you're it's working the, in it's black the manipulation. and white. Uh, in black and white, or in that case, in colors, uh, the manipulation of marks on the plate. Uh, and you test it and test it through running proofs. And uh, uh, often, I will go through maybe as many as 60 states of, of, a, uh, of a plate, just making some scratches and then biting it in acid and then printing it to see what it looks like. So I never know when that's going to end until I get to that point where it seems like that's it. I see. And even then, uh, I think the question, the question of when a work is finished, uh, I don't know how it is in other art, but I think in, in, in painting, it may be the crucial question. Uh, when are you there? And how do you know? Uh, well, once, I mean, when you make a print, you've committed yourself along the way. It's hard to undo what you've done. Whereas in a painting, you can undo. You can. Uh, what you eliminate in the print is that when I start a painting, I usually start with a drawing in charcoal, yeah. and I can move things around and erase and so on. And then when it starts to congeal, when I start to see where the image is, like what you saw in my studio, yeah. the, the line drawing, I, I draw in very liquid uh, oil paint over the charcoal and then erase everything else. So I have that line drawing, which looks yeah. very simple and unmodulated. Uh, but uh, I'm still free to wipe out and change things as, mm -hmm. I, as I go along. It's a long process. In the print, I don't have that possibility, but I do in an additive way have the possibility of changing. I can suppress things, make yeah. them darker. I can you know, do a lot of things. Now, you have amongst the, the works here some figure drawings. Now, um, 
your the still lives are idealized, yeah, and or they are. Um, I mean, these are not utensils that we use, and we're not look. We don't look at these uh, prints and think, well, they will ever be used. They are simply counters that you move around and create this sort of. Uh, this ideal relationship between them. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, uh, I would say a, an idea of perfection. Um, but the figure paintings uh, and drawings, it's, they don't exist in the same world. They exist maybe in an adjacent imaginative or psychic space, but could you talk about the difference between working on a canvas, uh, yeah. making a still life, and that of making the figures? Well, first of all, uh, I would ha have to separate the, the drawings from the paintings. The, the drawings are not preparatory. The drawings are not preparatory, and the drawings are done directly from the model. The, the, Paintings are done, in every case, the paintings in, are done from my imagination or my memory. They're not, I don't set things up and look at them. Uh, and so the drawings are much more, uh, they have much more to do with the experience of, of looking at something outside the work. Yeah, and there's a, a figure in the room responding to. Uh, the difference between the still life paintings and the, and the uh, figures, I suppose, goes back to the, the very beginning of my, my change to this, what is recognizably my work now, because I was working, as you know, in more abstract mm -hmm. uh, vein until 1960. And I just lost my track uh, there. Well, um, I have another question, uh, unless you found your track. I haven't found my track. Oh. You know, the figure paintings, there's always, it seems to me, a narrative. I found that's my track. OK. <laughs> I had I had uh, started these figure paintings out of my head, uh -huh. uh, and I was very influenced by uh, the early de Kooning and early Gorky figurative. And then I I saw, of course, what they had seen. I was looking at Ang, and I was looking at Picasso. And uh, these invented figures were very bad, and uh, but seemed very promising to me. I mean, this was a very good thing that happened to me. Well, they seem promising I in meant, retrospect, or well, no, you didn't paint them thinking these are promising figures. I thought, there's something here that I've got to uh, get. Oh, I see. So they opened up a, a world for me there. I could see that they weren't very good, but I could also see that they could get better. Whereas before, 
I was doing paintings where I couldn't see how they could get better without looking like somebody else that I'd already seen. It didn't, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so while I was working on these paintings, I, I stumbled onto this egg painting. I talked to a, f a friend uh, and former teacher, Conrad Marcarelli. Uh, we were talking about purity of form. And, and Conrad said, now you take the egg, he said. There's no, you can't purify that form. And I idly thinking about purifying egg. <laughs> kind of idiotic thing that painters think about. Uh, and I started a little painting with a couple of eggs. And I thought, it was kind of uh, interesting. And I kept working on it. And then I had the idea <clears throat> of doing a group of them uh, in a very minimal way, just eggs, a back plane, a plane for them to rest on, and varying the luminosity of the eggs and, and playing with that, uh, with the rhythms that were possible there in a very abstract way. And uh, that was a great relief uh, from the kind of tension uh, that was uh, brought on by the by the figure paintings. So they were uh, a relaxation, in a way, from, from the rigors of, of uh, dealing with the figure, which is always, whether you're very abstract or whatever you are with the figure, the figure is us. The figure is another human being. You cannot avoid that. As soon as you have the beginnings of a face uh, or, or a recognizable part. As Albers used to say, cats look for cats, dogs look for dogs, and we look for other people. And so the slightest shift in, in a mouth, in a nostril, an eyebrow, uh, slightest change uh, completely changes the painting. Well, that's not true in a, in a still life. Well, that leads me to something else, that the figures Figure paintings always contain an implied narrative, especially when you have two figures. Mm. And the part of the pleasure of looking is to supply a narrative. True or false, but there you begin, your mind begins to wander. And when you look at the still life, it's the rejection of narrative. The only narrative that exists seems to be between one still life and another, when you try to, you know, I mean, it's as if you had one family portrait, and then uh, you have another family portrait, but the big guy is now a little guy, and the little guy is skinny guy, and so you, you see, you know, change, transition, and you, I mean, you don't wonder why did Bill do that, but you here again, it's the narrative of, uh, you know, kind of provisional perfection. And in the in the figure paintings, it's it's psychological. I mean, one is confronted with usually in your paintings a perplexing situation. 
and um, I can see why one might want to retreat from the figure into still life where that doesn't obtain, or maybe I'm all wrong. Is that part of it? Yeah, I think you're, from my viewpoint, you're partly right, partly wrong. I think you're right in the main. But I do have a, there is a kind of narrative uh, that goes with the still life. Uh, but it's, it's ineffable. It, it, uh, Give me it's an there example. there as I work. Uh, they take on the different objects, take on personalities in relation to one another. And I would never claim any narrative uh, uh, importance for this. This is something that comes out of working and in a way daydreaming as you work, as I work. Uh, and understanding uh, uh, intuitively if, if there's a relationship that's disturbing to me or that I find attractive about three objects' relationship to one another. In a, in a, in a figure painting, it, the difference is that they are figures, they're people, and uh, they, they may not be realistic people or real people, but they are nevertheless, they have the attributes of people. Well, we usually think of narrative as involving people and not pots. I mean, that's why I made that distinction, you know. Yes. I think for you, as you paint, you may have a relationship to the pots, which constitutes a kind of narrative, but it's not one that at least easily perceived by me. I don't, I mean, I, uh, I find it, what I find intriguing about the still lives is that you can use so you can use the same objects in so many different ways. And they create, um, I mean, that you can use the same pots and manipulate and put them in different positions and the feeling is entirely different from painting to painting. Now, this could be a result of the, the color that you use. I mean, there is a, uh, I mean, it could be that the paintings have very different tonalities from one another. And so the feeling one gets looking at them can be entirely different. Well, uh, it, it can be for a number of reasons. It can be relationships, it can be uh, uh, some of the paintings that I do, I feel uh, are intimate in the sense mm -hmm. that I can sort of navigate following my nose between objects and have them move mm -hmm. up around me. Uh, others are, uh, I see, a, you know, a, a city or you know, vast. Uh, well, you name them after cities. I name them after places, uh, mm -hmm. and that's mostly a convenience uh, because like, I'm in Italy a lot, and because the paintings owe a lot to Italy, I use a lot of Italian titles. Uh, sometimes the titles have a, a literal uh, a meaning. Uh, 
I mean, they're tied to a place in a literal way. Other times, they're just uh, an homage to a place that I've been, and uh, uh, it's a convenience to use that, or I like the way it sounds. Um, sometimes it has a very important meaning. Uh, one of them, for example, uh, called Monterki, is, uh, is named uh, partly because the painting itself reminded me of looking at the town of Monterki, but also because uh, one of my great heroes is Piero della Francesca, and there's a, a great Piero in Monterki, the Madonna del Parto, and uh, his mother, Piero's mother, was born in Monterki. So there are all of these things coming together which caused me, gave me the pleasure of, of, of naming that, that painting that way. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it will be only uh, a town that I remember vaguely. Uh, how do you name your figure paintings? Oh, it's hard. <laughs> hard. You know, I I don't I can't remember a single name from a title for a figure painting. I've never really looked at them. Yeah, good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've never looked at the titles. Yeah, I've looked at yeah. the paintings. Yeah. I mean, would you ever? Uh, would you? I mean, it's, it must give you a tremendous amount of freedom to just pick another Italian town to name a, yeah. a painting after. Why can't you do that with figure painting? Well, I could do that. Uh, Why haven't you? Maybe I will do that. Uh, actually, the, the painting that you saw in the studio of the figures on the grass in yeah. Umbria is called, uh, provisionally, it's called uh, Pomeriggio in Umbria, or Afternoon in, in Umbria, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, simply a descriptive title. That, uh, and it's interesting, uh, yeah. It is an afternoon painting, yeah. but there is no time in your still lights because they're all indoors, yeah. and indoors gives you the opportunity, opportunity to be absolute. But there was the time that I was trying to do this uh, dark harbor yeah. for your I, book of poems. I was trying to do a, a crepuscular painting. For, yeah, I, I like those paintings you did. Well, I did a bunch of them yeah. because I was trying to do one that would work for a cover for Mark's book. And uh, it was so hard uh, to pull the palette down in this very close, dark range. I was never satisfied with those. A couple of them I, I, I thought were okay. Oh, I like them, and I like the idea that they were so dark. I mean, most of your still life paintings have a kind of neutrality. They're terracotta or kind of earthy green, and the light is, well, it's not. Well, it's diffused, it's not but really if you look at that back wall, yeah. And you, the one on the left has a different light than the one on the right. Well, it's hard. I mean, I think it's hard for, well, let me admit to a failing of my own. There are many, of course, but <laughs> this is probably a major one. What I see is really a difference in color. I see that one is 
dark terracotta, the other is a kind of slate green. Now look at the objects. What? Look at the objects. Well, the objects are much brighter in one and seem to be... Because of the light. Yeah, but the light doesn't seem to affect the background. The background no. seems... The, the back wall, whatever is back there, doesn't seem affected by the light, but maybe walls aren't. Uh, right. Uh, but I feel that they are. Um, well, they can be, but they don't have to be. No. And, well, and the, the thing I, I would say about painting out of your head. You can do uh, anything. You can do whatever you want. Of course. You yeah. can say, this is the way things are. Yeah. And uh, Same thing with talking out of your head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you don't paint. From anything but memory. No, that's what I just told uh -oh. you. Uh, but could you, I mean, I'm sort of curious because you, you mentioned Piero della Francesca. And in what ways does, say, Piero uh, influence your still life painting? Uh, in, in many of them have to do with uh, a spiritual connection that I make mm -hmm. uh, that is nothing that I can identify. Uh, qualities that I care about uh, that are manifested in uh, the purity of the form, weight, density, uh, uh, attention to uh, the entire uh, area of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of a work. Many of those things are not only things that I get from Piero, but things that are modernist concerns that came with uh, my generation or mm -hmm. mine. And do you feel the same in relation to the figure paintings? Yes. William Bailey and Mark Strand in Conversation took place on November 11, 2010 at the Whitney Humanities Center. The William Bailey Works on Paper exhibit is on view at the Gallery at the Whitney from November 8, 2010 to January 28, 2011.